Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 10, verses 1 through 12 and verses 17 through 20. Luke 10, verses 1 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to wish you a happy new year again, and welcome to our Sunday service. One tradition, as Pastor David mentioned, that we hold at Exilic, and we've held at Exilic since the very beginning, is to kick off every new year with the sermon series on our DNA. If we forget who we are as a church, what we're called to do, who we want to be, then we will all naturally drift away from these things, our identity, our mission, our vision. So we take the very first sermons at the top of the year to recalibrate and recenter ourselves on three things, our name, our mission, and our vision. So last week, Pastor Aaron, he kicked us off by reminding us of our exilic identities. We are exiles who are on the way home. And I love that this is the name of our church, even though a lot of people, they're, they, they're like, what? What does that mean? But I love it because my natural tendency is to build my home here and now. So if I look at some metrics, where do my thoughts tend to drift 
How do I spend my free time? Or where does most of my budget go? I can see plain as day that every day I am trying to build my kingdom, my home. So I need to be reminded every week as I come to church that I am called to live for something more. My true home, which is in God's kingdom, is yet to come, and I am an exile journeying there. Our name is very important because it reveals our nature and our purpose, but this week we will take a look at our mission. Now, a lot of people confuse mission and vision, and the way that we differentiate these two things is simply this. Mission is what we want to do, while vision is who we want to be. So today, we will look at the mission of our church. And last week, we said that we are exiles, but we're not just wandering aimlessly. Our focus is not just about getting home ourselves. As Christians, we are exiles on mission. The word mission, it comes from the Latin word missio, which simply means to send. That Latin word is a translation of the Greek word apostole, from which we get the word apostle. So before we jump into our mission statement, I want to ask the question, is mission for apostles, specifically the apostles in the New Testament, or the church, or is it for all of us as well? Is it specifically the apostles in the Bible who are called to mission by Jesus, or is it all Christians? Or to contextualize it, the mission statement of exilic, inspiring thinkers to believe, inspiring believers to think, is that the mission of the organization, the institution, or the mission of all of you members? I've heard so many of you say, I love Exilic's mission statement. Well, is it also your mission statement? And so the answer that we see in the Bible is that it ought to be both. So in, this, in, the, in the chapter right before our passage today, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. He gives them authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick. He tells them to proclaim God's kingdom and heal the hurting. He sends out the apostles who represent the church. Remember, Jesus says to Peter, on you, on this rock, you and the apostles, I will build my church. But in our passage today, the very next chapter, Jesus sends out 72 others whom he appoints to do the exact same thing. We don't know really much about who these people are, but they're not part of the inner circle of apostles. They're not apostles. They're not full-time pastors. They're not full-time missionaries. They're not seminary trained. They haven't lived with Jesus for years like the disciples. These are ordinary believers. They have families. They have jobs. They have obligations. Jesus calls them to mission. He sends them into the world. So today, I want us to see the mission of exilic not just as the church's mission, but your mission. They're one in the same. 
I want us to see the corporate and the individual aspects of this mission statement. Individual in the sense that you can't just say, oh, that's the church's mission statement, that's not mine. You're called to buy Jesus on mission, but it's corporate in that you're not sent individually. Jesus specifically sends out the 72 two by two. We are sent together. And that's such an important part of the Christian life. Because we live in a Western individualistic culture that values and worships the self as the highest arbiter of truth and meaning. Our culture tells us this every day. Don't let anyone define truth for you. Not church, not family, not the world, not government, not media. You define truth for yourself. Find your truth and live by that. You know, as a parent, I I watch so many uh, children's movies now and it's so interesting in so in these movies how how parents are portrayed uh they're 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 always so stubborn they're they're old-fashioned they're clueless and they try to force their children to live by their standards and in all these movies the kids always know better and this is the world that we are living in It's no wonder then that people are feeling more isolated and alone than ever before. Because if the self and your truth, if that's the highest virtue, then you are placing a pressure upon yourself that you cannot possibly handle. The Christian life, it's not first a call to mission. It's first a call to Jesus. It's first a call to to belong. Jesus calls us in before he ever calls us out. Before you are an ambassador, you are a child of the king. You belong. You are part of this family. You are adopted as a beloved child of God. So bear that in mind as we look at our passage in light of our mission statement today. Our mission statement reads, inspiring thinkers to believe, inspiring believers to think. I want to look at our passage from three perspectives today. Inspiring, thinkers believing, believers thinking. So those three things. First, inspiring. The word inspire, it comes from the Latin word, which literally means breathe into. Breathe into. And this is an important theme throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, the Spirit of God is described in Hebrew as the breath of God, Ruach Elohim. God breathed life into the world. He inspires life through his Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspires the words of the Bible. Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed. So when we say that we want to inspire thinkers and believers, we're not the ones breathing life into them. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. He breathes life into Adam. He breathes life into all creation. We are not the inspirers, but we are the agents or the conduits of inspiration. 
You know, when Jesus sends out the 72, he gives them his authority. They have authority over demons. They have authority over physical diseases. But it's God's power at work through them, not their own power. It's like a pharmacist injecting someone with a vaccine shot. The vaccine is the source of power, not the one administering it. So in many ways, it's like we're called to be waiters at a three Michelin star restaurant. The mission of the waitstaff is to get the food from the chef to the diner in exactly the way that the master chef has prepared it. We're not to improve upon the dish itself because we would only ruin it, right? Any addition to a completed masterpiece, it would only compromise it. We're never to improve the dish itself, but we can enhance the eater's experience of the meal with impeccable and loving service. Our primary job is to deliver the meal, but the way in which you do it, it can either enhance or detract from the patron's experience of the meal. We've all been there, right? To a restaurant with really bad service. No matter how good the meal is, you still have that bitter aftertaste after of a bad dining experience because of the service. On the other side, you've had those really great servers. I used to be one. The ones who anticipate your needs. Refills before you ask. They're engaging. They're friendly. They, they give you those recommendations that just compel you to order them because the, the, the waiter makes it sound so good. They check in on you. They see how your meal is going and why, yes, I will try the dessert. How do thinkers and skeptics end up believing? Ultimately, it's God who they encounter. But our love and our service to them might just want to make them have more. Might just enhance the experience of God more. But it's not just our service. Jesus tells the 72 right up front, it's going to be really hard. Jesus says that in verse 2, while the harvest is plentiful, the workers will be few. You know what? Christians are going to be outnumbered. It's so interesting seeing the diminishing of Christian influence in our culture and in our country. For centuries in our country, Christians have represented a moral majority and today, more than ever, people are leaving the faith. They're leaving the church. They're no longer identifying as Christians. And so many of our culture wars are happening today because many Christians, they don't want to give up this influence. And both sides are responding in very unchristian ways. And what so many Christians are forgetting is that our faith, it flourishes in the margins. Jesus' plan was not for his followers to lead in social influence and power. The church was to be a faithful and marginalized minority. Verse 3, he says it clear as day. 
Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. What happens to lambs in the midst of wolves? They die. They don't stand a chance. They get slaughtered. And I want to ask you this question. What is a more powerful message? A Christian who succeeds well and gets everything that the world is chasing or a Christian who suffers and dies well because he or she has something better? Our love and service to this world, it may be inviting, but to do so while we're being torn apart, discredited, persecuted, ridiculed, beaten, and killed... That's something else. That will be a supernatural force that will speak more powerfully than anything else. Jesus doesn't give the 72 a socio-political authority. They would be looked down on, they would be rejected, they would be ridiculed. But just because they're not culturally influential doesn't mean they do not have authority. We see that they have a spiritual authority here. The demons are subject to them. And the physical power that they do have, it's not to overpower others, but to heal others. They've been given authority to heal diseases and hearts. Last week, Pastor Aaron, he talked about us being resilient exiles. He said that we are to be nonconformist. We will not be liked or respected by our world. We will lose friends and reputations. We will be attacked and mocked for our views. But remember this, church. Make no mistake. You are the king's messengers. You are sent by the king with his authority. The demons themselves are subject to you. You hold your head high and you go in confidence and courage because you belong to the king. You proclaim his kingdom. You bring the king's peace. You warn of the king's judgment. Verse 4, Jesus says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. He's saying no distractions, stay focused on the mission. Rely upon Jesus alone. And Christians, let me be clear, we do not resort to tactics, methods, and tricks. We don't have to bait and switch anyone into the kingdom. Skeptics will see right through that. We're called to do only two things. Verse 9, heal the sick. That's the first one Jesus says. We assess the needs of others. We do everything in our power, relying on God's power to heal others. Secondly, proclaim to them, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. We proclaim a simple yet profound message. God is near. Emmanuel, God with us, is here. His name is Jesus, and we bring you his peace. This Jesus, he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died. He rose again from the dead, 
And if we believe upon him, if we trust upon him, if we receive him as king, we will belong to his kingdom. We are to relay this message clearly, powerfully. Greatness has come near. Our words, together with our deeds, delivering this message with our very lives, more powerful than demons. Through us, thinkers will be inspired by God to believe. Dead hearts will beat. Dry bones will come to life. You know, we all have people in our lives who do not know God. And if you are a Christian, don't give up praying for them. Continue to love and serve them with humility. See their needs and meet them. Pray, work for their healing, and speak to them of Jesus. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need a seminary degree. Share your hope. Share your story. Pray with them. Bring them to church. Remember, you're not to do this on your own. Two by two, we're in this together. But don't forget that it's God who saves. He inspires. Don't try to do it yourself. Don't try to pressure or argue anyone into the kingdom. Don't resort to tactics and tricks. Don't rearrange the plating or add ingredients to the dish. Trust and pray. And if you're here today, and if you are not a Christian, if you're not a believer, welcome Thank you for coming. Can I say to you on behalf of all Christians or all believers that I'm sorry for the ways in which we have discredited and compromised the message of the gospel. I am sorry for the bad service that you may have witnessed or received from professing Christians like me in the past. I hope that you will continue to come to seek, to taste. Because I know that once you have really seen, really tasted, nothing else will compare. Nothing. Please keep coming, keep asking, keep seeking until you found what you're looking for. But please don't give up. Don't give up. Because we see here that the stakes are too high. I don't have time to go into the judgment aspects of verses 12 through 16. But if God is real, and if what the Bible says about him is true, then this king's judgment is not something you ever, ever want to face. Ever. All of us deserve it. Christians aren't better than non-Christians. All Christians have done is trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, which means that rather than taking the punishment that we deserve, Jesus takes it on our behalf. He saves us. The stakes are too high for you to reject this faith without thoroughly considering what it says. So please keep coming, keep asking, don't give up. Well, the 72, they return in verse 17, and they return rejoicing. 
marveling. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Whoa. And Jesus kind of looks at them and he, he kind of wet blankets their joy. He says in verse 18, Well, I saw Satan fall like lightning from, the, from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The last part of our mission statement is inspiring believers to think. Well, what are they to think about? Jesus says to them, don't rejoice over this, what you can do, but rejoice over this, what I can do. What's been done to you. Don't think about this, think about this. You know, my my kids have have really been into Star Wars the past uh, few months, and we finally watched all nine movies. We watched the last one last night. And they are obsessed. My son Andy, he came up to me right before Christmas and was like, you know what, Appa, if I could, if I could have anything for Christmas, do you, know, do you know what it would be? I'd be so happy if I got this. And I said, what? And he said, the force. <laughs> and I said in my best Yoda voice, foolish you are, young Padawan. But I was thinking this as I was preparing the sermon. Imagine I woke up tomorrow morning And all of a sudden, I could cast out demons, and I can heal the sick. Miraculously. I'd be pretty happy, too. The pandemic would be over. Mental health problems would be solved. It would be great, but Jesus says that's nothing. Don't center your joy on what you can do. Center your joy on the fact that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in the mission, Jesus says. Rejoice in the one who sends you on mission. Don't rejoice in your mission, Jesus says. Rejoice in my mission to you. What do we want our believers to do? To think about this and to rejoice. We want to inspire one another and others to rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Going back to my earlier analogy, we're not merely waiters, but we are children of the master chef. We know and have been raised in, we delight in his food, we love his food, we know his food before we ever serve it to others. The more we feast on the meal, the better we're going to be at feeding others. You know, later in this chapter, a few verses after this, Jesus goes to the home of two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Martha, she's all busy trying to serve Jesus, and she gets mad at Mary for not helping her. Martha was preoccupied with serving Jesus, but where was Mary? She was at Jesus' feet. She couldn't get enough of him. She was obsessed with him. She couldn't leave his feet. And Jesus says to Martha in verse 41, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about so many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. 
Mary has chosen what's better, and it will not be taken away from her. At the end of the day, Jesus is not impressed by our abilities, our talents, our service to him. Jesus wants our hearts. He wants our devotion. He wants our love. He wants us, not what we can do for him. Does your faith kind of default constantly to what you do for him? Your measure of your spiritual life, it's based on what you do, how much Bible you read, how much you pray, that you go to church, that you give money, that you serve, that you help others. It's so easy for believers to get lost in that, to become Martha. We want to inspire our people to think like Mary, choosing what is better, that she belongs to Jesus, the greatest joy. I'll close with this story that I shared a few years ago. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, I went on a two-month summer mission trip to New Mexico. And there we served in Navajo Nation. And we did service projects. We did evangelism with locals. We, we made many relationships. And God did some pretty amazing things that summer. People came to faith. We, we really fell in love with the people there. But you know, that's not really what I remember most from the trip. What I remember most is this. We ended the trip with a big fiesta at the mission space there. We invited all the people who we were doing outreach to. And they were going to come and they were going to show us how to roast sheep according to Navajo tradition. So I went with a few of them into town to buy the lambs. And I remember sitting in the bed of a pickup truck with the lambs. And it was such a bumpy ride on the dirt roads back. And we were just tumbling all over the place in the back of the pickup truck with these sheep. And then I remember that night, one of them got loose. And I don't think I've ever run as frantically in my life. It was so hard to catch that one lost sheep. So much to learn. Well, the next day, Everyone came for the fiesta, and it was time to slaughter the lambs. Each mission's team there, they, they were given, each given a lamb. And I somehow landed the job of holding the lamb's head as my pastor slit the lamb's throat. I still remember his hands were shaking, and so were mine. But the lamb was so still, didn't move at all. And it stayed like that even as the knife slit the throat and the blood poured out. And I held onto that head even though I didn't really need to. I watched and I felt the lamb dying in my hands and I wept. I think that's the first time in my life that I really understood what I had grown up hearing, that Jesus was this lamb for me. For my sin, he bled and died. I will never forget that image of my hands holding the bloody lamb. 
You know, as a pastor here at Exilic, there's been so much for me to rejoice over the past few years. To see this church grow the way that it has, to see how resilient we've been in the midst of a global pandemic, to see people changed and saved, people coming to faith miraculously, to see us ordain our very first ruling elders. There's so much for me to rejoice about our mission as a church. But my greatest joy, what I need to think about most, it must be that the Lamb was slain, and through his death, my name, me, what have I done? My name is written in heaven, in the Lamb's book. That is my joy. And my mission in life is to inspire others into that joy. Will that be your mission statement as well? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. We thank you that we are your children. We thank you and we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Help us to never move away from that. Help that to center our joy. May we all be like Mary at your feet. And send us out, God, on mission. May our lives have purpose and meaning as we go and as we bring the king's peace and warn of the king's judgment as we love others and as we heal the sick. Help us to do so every day. Bless us. We, we thank you again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.